Okay, so we are in Mark chapter number three, <clears throat> and we are, our text this morning is in uh, verse 13, and it goes through verse 35. <clears throat> Looks like you're about there, so I will go ahead and, uh, and start reading. <clears throat> So chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So you probably recall, I've mentioned this before, that two themes run through the entire book of Mark. One being uh, who Jesus is, his divine sonship and authority, and again, what it means to follow him. And both of these themes touch our text this morning uh, in reverse order. And in our text today, Jesus calls us to treasure him above all and to follow him. He, uh, in other words, calls us to be his brothers and sisters. And we get two contrasting scenes in our text. We start with a beautiful mountaintop experience for those closest to Jesus, 
followed by an ugly turn into the sinful mire, uh, we'll call it a valley. Um, I, you know, call it the valley of acrimony. So we've got this awesome mountaintop experience, and then in a moment we kind of get stuck in the mire of scribes and accusations and and all kinds of uh, nasty stuff. So on the mountaintop in verses 13 through 19, Jesus calls a special unit of men to treasure him so much that they would leave their old lives and follow him on his mission. And so at this point in the ministry, If you've been following along, Jesus already has a pretty large following, doesn't he? We've already read that he's called some uh, disciples, some students. In chapter 1, Jesus called four fishermen. And in chapter 2, he called at least one uh, Levi, a tax collector, uh, who is Matthew. But uh, if you recall, the party had many, so there there, there were very likely more than just Matthew called uh, that day from their, uh, their tax collecting work. And uh, Mark doesn't exhaustively record all of the followers of Jesus. In fact, he doesn't exhaustively record anything, it seems. But we know from other texts like Acts that uh, Joseph Barsabas and Matthias uh, from Acts 1, uh, 21 through 23, were with Jesus from his baptism. So from his baptism, he has been gathering uh, followers here. Uh, you recall, uh, I'm sure, that the Marys uh, followed him. We had Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And of all of those who were followers of Jesus, his inner circle, if you will, were chosen here in verse 13. And uh, one thing that the ESV misses in, in, uh, in verse 13 from the Greek, it's, uh, it's much more forceful. The NASB picks it up. Uh, the, uh, the NASB translation says, He summoned those who, whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. This is, uh, this is a forceful call uh, to these men, and, um, and we, should, uh, we should make sure that we pick up on that little detail. So in chapter 1, I think it was Nathan Miller who reminded us that rabbis didn't choose students. This is, uh, this is unheard of. This is un- unorthodox, if you will. Students would choose the rabbi that they would study under in that day. And uh, rabbis were, uh, were men who were under the law, under the Torah, and, uh, and were uh, very um, you know, uh, humble and didn't hold themselves out with the kind of authority that Jesus did. The, um, they were uh, always subject to the scripture that they were teaching pointing to it, uh, and, and this is very different from uh, the authority that Jesus would uh, teach with. And uh, any rabbi would only take as many as seven uh, students as well. And so 
what's going on here is radically different um, in many ways. Jesus has a different plan, and it is clear in this text here that Jesus is not bound by the convention of Jewish spiritual leaders. Our first setting here is probably in the western hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Uh, throughout history, mountaintop experiences uh, were where people would experience God's presence. He clearly uh, loves the mountains. Significant moments in history happened on mountains, and uh, this is one of them. Jesus begins building his church right here on the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So in verses 19, or 13 through 19, Jesus formally calls 12 disciples and he commissions them. Uh, some cool things happening in here that also happened in chapter 1. Uh, I mentioned in chapter 1, you may recall that Mark pulled a thread from creation. He begins his narrative, his book, with in the beginning. And on the mountaintop, we see some threads of this again. Uh, Mark tugging on this creation narrative. In uh, verse 16, he says he appointed the 12. In the Greek, the word is actually made. It's the same as the creation uh, language in uh, the creation narrative. It's as if Jesus created these 12. And uh, further, the right to naming belongs to the master. So you got a nod here to Adam. Uh, like Adam, Jesus naming the uh, uh, creation that God gave him. Jesus here is naming those that the Father gave him. Uh, what a great place to start this uh, this church. And so uh, verse 14 gives us two reasons that Jesus made these missionaries, made these apostles. What are the two reasons? Do you see that in, uh, in verse 14? One is to be with him, right? And the second one is to be sent, right? Yeah. So, uh, so for two reasons, these men are called to be with him and then to be sent. And to be sent has a twofold uh, sort of mission. Uh, they have two responsibilities in their uh, sending. That is to preach and to have authority over demons. So this means that they were sent to preach what they had heard Jesus teach and what they had seen Jesus do. This is what they, their, their new job, if you will, their new vocation. And remember how we see Jesus continually silencing the unclean spirits, right? They say, you are the Christ, and he silences them. But see here now that he cho chooses who will go out and proclaim the good news to say who he is, if you will, uh, in contrast to those demons. He doesn't give the demons permission to proclaim that he is the Messiah. He binds their speech, if you will. This, rather, is an honor reserved for 
his people, his team. Recall in chapter 1, a demon at the end of chapter 1 clearly called him the Holy One of God. I mean, that sounds like preaching almost, doesn't it? But the spiritual leaders don't proclaim him as Christ. The demons know it and they don't get to. They are silenced. So the scribes and the Pharisees reject him. But this team of missionaries will go out with the message of the Messiah of the Messiah, and they will go out with the authority of the Messiah. So, uh, so by being with Jesus, their old lives are gone forever, aren't they? <clears throat> For two reasons. Uh, one is they have a new job. They will be co-laborers now in uh, Christ's ministry. Their old lives are a thing of the past. Jesus is now in charge of their lives. Being with Jesus means forsaking human idols, you know, no more sort of climbing the corporate ladder of, of fishing or tax collecting or uh, any other uh, vocation, but rather uh, all of their time dedicated to honoring the one true God. To be in fellowship with Jesus is of greatest value. He calls them to treasure him above all and put their lives in his hands. In this call, we see a glimpse of what creation is supposed to look like here, right? This is what man was created for, this type of relationship. And so he also names them. it's funny, it's just an observation, I didn't put it in my notes, but Mark goes through the names and he starts by explaining some of the names, but he doesn't explain all of them. It's just, uh, it's just so uh, funny and characteristic of Mark's uh, you know, choosing what he sort of explains and kind of zipping through uh, the past. So for example, he mentions Matthew, doesn't Mentioned that's that's Levi, who is now Matthew, and and mentioned in other texts. He doesn't uh, explain Bartholomew, which really isn't uh, a name. It's just uh, hilarious. But he does explain Peter, of course, and then um, he doesn't whitewash history. Um, you know, he names Judas, who uh, betrayed him. How about uh, how about the sons of thunder? You guys like that uh, that name? Uh, I I'm, I think that Boanerges is probably Greek. That's probably, you know, I'm not uh, sure exactly uh, how to uh, pronounce that. But <clears throat> jot down in your notes, the little notebooks, uh, Luke 9.54. Just throw that down there. And later this afternoon, you can read about the Sons of Thunder. It seems like they were named that. They were perhaps a couple of hotheads. Kind of, uh, kind of interesting. So, uh, so have a look at that uh, later on uh, today. Mark wrote this about 30 years after Jesus' betrayal and death. But, uh, but still he has Judas on the list. And so um, uh, we, will, we will see a couple of things. There's some foreshadowing here. There's a connection to the next part of our text, but, um, but it also shows 
that his followers, Christ's followers, were not perfect men, doesn't it? They were uh, tarnished sinners. They uh, were not noble. They had not earned some favorable status to be called to build his church. But rather, they were undeserving of the grace that Jesus showed them. It shows us that Jesus would accomplish his perfect plan and fulfill all the purposes for which he called them, even in spite of their weakness and sin. And we'll see through all of this text how, um, frankly, disappointing these guys are as uh, church founders, as his closest companions. And so this is our, this is our first scene. Super cool calls a bunch of unworthy, undeserving guys into uh, a service that will have lasting uh, consequences, even to this day, as, uh, as a church is, is built. And so we transition in verse 20 into a kind of a, a, a lousy scene here, a really uh, disappointing scene. In you know, I make notes in, in my... Um, uh, in my notes, and uh, you know we've got a, you know outside attacks, inside attacks. We've got some things here that are frankly um, unattractive. So if I if I use the whiteboard, I would only use it to say mountaintop experience and this scene in the Valley of Acrimony, right? So acrimony is. Uh, you know, a bad relationship. There's resentment, anger, bitterness, and uh, and that's the kind of stuff that we see going on with uh, with uh, a few different uh, followers of Jesus. So Mark concludes verse 19, saying that uh, that Judas will betray him, and we move back to Peter's house here in verse 20. And Jesus is betrayed. He's betrayed by the size of the crowd. He's betrayed by his family. And in the next verse, he's betrayed by the scribes who should embrace him the most, right? We'd like to think that if Jesus showed up today and came in and, and, and was the guest preacher and he was preaching that... Uh, you know, you know how vocal Jeff is when a guest preacher is, you know, somebody says something right and you hear a come on, you know, and this kind of thing. Right. Right. You would think that if Jesus showed up, if you were in the Sunday school class teaching or something like that, he, we would love what he is saying. Right. He and Jeff was, would be saying, yeah, that's what I've been telling you guys for the last 10 years, what he said. Right. But, but the scribes don't reply that way. They don't react that way. Uh, and uh, they're angry. They hate him. They are scheming against him. And, uh, and so uh, here we are at, uh, at Peter's house, the same house that was overwhelmed when Jesus healed the paralytic, right? Uh, now there's a sunlight feature at this house, thanks to uh, that guy. Um, and the crowd is an obstacle here rather than an asset. Uh, <clears throat> the, the crowd is so big, it thwarts even his ability to rest. It's just too much. 
uh, I imagine that Jesus is working pretty hard here on his mission. He is moving around. He's preaching and teaching full time. And I go back to my house to rest. I mean, that's that's what I'm there for, you know. And so the house, it says in verse 20, is so packed he couldn't even open the fridge. If you see that, depending on your uh, translation. Uh, at this point, we know why the crowd's there, though, right? I mean, they're there for a myriad of reasons. It's not all for good purposes. It's not all to, uh, to hear preaching and teaching. Some are there for their own purposes, maybe to be healed, maybe just to see what he's going to do next. I, you know, I've never seen an, uh, an exorcism before, things like that. So they're, they're there for all manner uh, of purpose. And in verse 21... You get the sense that there's a lot more going on in the scene than Mark tells us, right? So uh, in verse 21 here, it says, it's kind of abrupt. What a surprise. It says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So um, other translations says, uh, the Greek says, those of him could mean associates, kin, followers, friends, and family. But we know in John 2 that his mother and brothers were in Capernaum in his early ministry. We know in our text a little bit later, um, in 31, his mother and brothers are there. So it's very likely um, his family. And Mark's point here is, those who should be closest to him, right, are trying to oppose him and shut him down. When his own people heard of this, this, the Greek says, they went to seize him, believing Jesus had gone berserk. That's the Greek sort of translation. His family wants to seize Jesus, bind him, restrict him from doing what he's doing. And this, too, betrays his ministry. The crowds hinder him. His family tries to stop him. And in verse 22, the scribes accuse him of working for the other team. Team Satan or the house of Satan. So the scribes who should embrace him and his teaching instead oppose him. The uh, word Beelzebul used in verse 22, we've heard Beelzebub. We, Beelzebul is, only shows up here. It isn't used anywhere else in Jewish language uh, or you know, pre-Christian language. But a commentator, James Edwards, says the best translation of Beelzebul is the prince of demons, It's summarized, the word Beelzebul is derived from the prince of the house of Baal. So the Beel piece being Baal related, and the Zubal is uh, is the house of. And so um, you've got this this picture that the scribes are trying to, to paint of Jesus is from the house of Baal, of the house of Uh, team Satan, if you will. And you recall chapter one at his baptism, Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? 
We see that we see the witness of that. And the scribes here don't deny the power of Jesus. They, but what they're doing here is they're assigning the source of his power being from Satan and not from the Holy Spirit. So these religious leaders have heard Jesus preach the scripture. They have seen his miracles and his authority, but they do not believe his message. They deny that he is the Christ. And so you, you can see here that faith doesn't come from witnessing what Jesus has done before their very eyes. And so in verse 23 to 30, Jesus takes control of this out-of-control, acrimonious situation and begins to teach. So in verse 23, Jesus seizes the prince of the house of Baal kind of language there and, uh, and begins to uh, clean this uh, scene up a bit. So he comes up with the image of the strong man's house. This is no doubt a play on the prince of the house of Baal uh, language that the scribes are throwing out here. So uh, Jesus, we see, is explicit when he's teaching insiders, but he uses parables when he's teaching outsiders. And, what, and the next text uh, that, that we have in a, in a couple weeks uh, he he goes into the uh, the parables and his teaching, so I'm going to save that for uh, the next guy. But Jesus used simple but strong logic now to teach the people who are in the room around him. He says it makes no sense. He um, he Jesus preaches a message of turning from sin and pledging allegiance to the Messiah. And he's vanquishing demons left and right. You know, if you, uh, does anyone watch 48 Hours? Probably some of the uh, older folks in the crowd might do that. The younger folks might not know what that is. If you watch 48 Hours, it would seem like every episode, uh, marriage ends in murder. That's how a marriage ends. (laughs) Ends in murder. Okay. Well, if you're reading Mark here, every episode in Mark It has a demon terrorizing someone, right? Like we've seen this how many times we're just cracking chapter three, right? And so Jesus is releasing these people from demonic oppression wherever he goes. It must be rampant because he just deputized 12 guys to do the same thing. This demon possession is a thing here, right? So is Jesus in cahoots with Satan? His work is directly opposed to Satan. So if he were from the house of Satan, it would make no sense. He's attacking the house of Satan. He's binding Satan's uh, ability to control this land. He's restricting Satan. He is freeing sinners from bondage in the house of Satan. Jesus, rather, is the binder of the strong man, Satan, who until now had an evil grip on the world. So Jesus is fulfilling the poetic words of Israel's restoration in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 says, 
Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? Remember, this is for the captive uh, Israelites here. They're in captivity. But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob, right? And isn't that what John the Baptist called uh, Jesus in chapter 1? The Mighty One, he says, the one mightier than me. Jesus is strong. He is the Mighty One that John the Baptist prophesied in chapter 1. Jesus came to liberate humanity from their helpless state in the grip of the strong man. He's at war. In this text, he is warring against Satan's power. He destroys Satan's power over these people before he can restore them to the image of God. He is here to give sight to those blinded by sin so that they can see him as their savior. Jesus won't coexist with sin. He is invading and conquering the prince of the house of Baal and kicking out his demons. In, see what I mean? In contrast, Jesus himself cannot be bound. His family, friends, followers, not even the scribes can bind him until the time that he chooses. And so in verse 28 here, he, uh, he pushes with a solemn warning. Jesus holds up the Holy Spirit in contrast to the work of the demons. I tell you the truth, or I assure you, he says, God will forgive all sins, however nasty, even blasphemy. But denying that God is working by the Holy Spirit In the man of Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Is anyone in this room here that cannot be saved? I mean, I wasn't thinking about this room, but in this scene here, I mean, it's a good question for for both of us. So far, you know, the only ones that cannot be saved are Satan and his demons, Right? The scribes can turn. They've blasphemed him so far, but they can turn from that. But calling good evil reveals a hardened heart, doesn't it? The spiritual blindness of the scribes seems to be willful and intentional here. But there is no salvation apart from Jesus. Those who see themselves as righteous and of no need for him will not dwell in his house with him. So uh, verses 31 through 35, we ask the question, who is my family? Who belongs in the house of Jesus? Mark concludes by returning us back. We're back in the crowded house here. And normally, a house is full of family 
and the outsiders are outside, aren't they? Right? A house, um, you know, a house is for rest, for maybe an intimate gathering. And, and if you're crazy and really want to push it, maybe a small euchre tournament, right? But certainly no more than that, right? But here, his family is outside. Do you see that? So in verses 31 and 32, Jesus' mom and brothers are outside the house. They call for him, and his response is a bit shocking, you might say. It's radical. It probably hurts some feelings. This is a family-centered culture, right? Family's everything. They live together, right? You know, parents live with their children and, and, and so on, right? It's an old uh, type of uh, culture, an old tradition. And Jesus says, my family is not who you think they are. He continues to teach here. He says, there are two kinds of people. There are two houses, if you will, two families. There are those who see Jesus as their savior. They sit at his feet. They love him and worship him. They cannot get enough of him. They serve him and do his will. Okay. Remember, we said there are people following Jesus for all kinds of different reasons with different agendas. Uh, They want Jesus to perform for them. And his family was there. But not all of them are in his family. Uh, We are not born into the family of Jesus physically by blood, rather by faith in him. And to be clear, the kind of faith which yields humble obedience to Jesus Christ. I, uh, I, re- I recall, so I grew up as a, as, a, uh, as a pastor's kid. Probably that's, maybe that's obvious to some of you. Pastor's kids struggle with authority and, you know, following rules, right? Uh, and um, <clears throat> we, uh, we came when I was young uh, to a, a school in, in Taylor. Dad came to start Baptist Park Schools, part of Gilead Baptist and Taylor on, on Telegraph. And, uh, and dad was the head of the Bible program and he, and he taught and, and um, you know, he was on staff and an elder. And, you know, little Willie, you know, who is, you know, maybe uh, six, seven, eight years old, grew up. And I had the run of the place. It was this awesome big building. And I did whatever I wanted to do. And I really felt like I could do what I want because, you know, my dad, right? He's, he's, he's a big deal, right, around uh, that, that little church. And so it wouldn't be till much, much later when uh, my father observed my lifestyle in college and reminded me, and I hope you young folks uh, uh, hear this, that his salvation... My dad's salvation, however beautiful and strong, is not my salvation. And and that's the point here that we need to uh, understand. That is, we do not come into the family of Christ as a result of 
finding him interesting or being connected or uh, being connected to somebody spiritual or even by acting spiritual, not by Christian parents, but by doing the will of God. So if you see yourself as truly a good person, as the scribes saw themselves, then I suppose you get all the glory that comes with that. That was Satan's mindset. Satan thought he had a better plan as well. And so you can enjoy the warmth of Satan's house for eternity if that is your mindset. Kent Hughes says, Obedience does not begin a relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience is a sign of it. Perhaps uh, Mr. Hughes read this text here where Jesus says, My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Right? So verse 4 puts a lovely, uh, lovely cap to, uh, to this teaching. And <clears throat> Mark, however uh, careful with his words, I think uh, says it best. Jesus says, my family is whoever does the will of God. That is my family. He calls us to treasure him above all and to do his will. Thank you. Hope that's a blessing for you guys.